Well, I've titled the message this morning, Amos, Social Injustice. Social Injustice. You know, there is a, uh, there is a misconception about Christianity that it's simply kind of a set of propositions that we need to believe. Okay, we get, make sure we believe the right thing about God. Make sure we bring, believe the right thing about Jesus, the gospel, the way of salvation. Uh, and those are all important things. And of course, as Presbyterians, we love theology. We love the word of God. Uh, it's a, just a shameless plug for Sunday school. I hope all of you can show up to learn about our confession of faith as Gideon walks us through it. He's doing a great job, and I commend that to you. Certainly, Christianity is growing in our, in our knowledge of God. But it's not merely kind of a vertical thing where we just need to make sure we believe the right things about God. God also tells us how we ought to live. And God is deeply concerned with the way we treat one another and the way we live in the world. Amos concentrates on the problem of ethics as we get to his book and as he prophesies to Israel. (coughs) But not ethics that are mainly personal, like this person is personally sinning or doing something evil, but he's dealing with corporate evil, with corporate ethics, using a term we sometimes use today about social justice, social living. So God is deeply concerned with these things. And remarkably, Amos, who is probably the first of the writing prophets, the first that wrote down and recorded, you've got guys like Elijah and uh, Elisha, but they didn't, we don't have like the book of Elisha, for example. Uh, Amos is the first one that we know of, you know, the scholars believe, who was the writing prophet, who came before any of the other, the other prophets as well. We don't exactly know when Joel prophesied, so there's some debate about that if he's the first, but most likely Amos is the first. He actually comes before Isaiah, and he is preaching to the Israelites. And Amos, of all things, contains more statements about social justice than any other book in the Old Testament. So this is the the major focus as we come to this minor prophet. The question that we need to ask today, though, is why do we need to study social justice? Now, why do we need to study the book of Amos? And the reason is because Israel's blatant and continual failure to uphold justice and righteousness corporately was the reason that God was going to wipe them off the face of the planet as a nation, carry them into exile. As we read in our scripture reading from chapter 5, fallen fallen is Israel never to arise again. Israel is never to this day going to arise again. There, Yes, there is a state of Israel, but in terms of this ancient people, this spiritual people of God, their fallen 
no more to rise. We will get to the connection to David and Judah in a little bit, but I'll let that hang for the moment. But anyways, God was so deeply grieved over Israel's injustice, the way they treated one another, that he wiped them out. And God is just as concerned about justice in the church as well, of how we treat one another. And as we partook of the Lord's Supper this morning, we are told that some were getting sick and some even were dying because of the rank division and injustices that were happening in the church of Corinth. So God is deeply concerned with how we treat one another. And our success, our fruitfulness, or our uh, disintegration also hangs on how we treat each other. And the sad reality as we talk about this subject is that almost everybody justifies themselves and thinks that they are right in their own eyes. And one of the principal problems for Israel that we'll see this morning is that they were almost entirely blind to their own shortcomings and failures. That's why God had to send the prophet. So it is incumbent upon us that we learn by seeing the errors of the Israelites so that we don't commit the same errors as the people of God in the church and in the world. So as we come to Amos, we come with some important questions this morning, like what is social justice? That's certainly a popular uh, term used today. What is social justice? What does justice look like for God's people then and now? How did Israel breach their covenant duty to uphold justice? You know, what are the consequences if we fail to do it? And, and a really important one is biblical social justice and secular forms of social justice the same. And I'll touch upon that at the end as well. So we're going to look at this message this morning in three parts. And we begin with looking with point number one, that Israel failed to uphold justice in their community. So let's look at this topic, how they failed to uphold justice in their community. Number one, under this point, they were blind to their hypocrisy. As I mentioned before, just utterly blind to their hypocrisy. God puts Israel in the crosshairs at the beginning of this book. You can look, if you want, on uh, page seven of your worship folder. As always, I've included an outline. But uh, under 1.B, after the superscription, uh, Israel uh, is in the crosshairs of judgment. The, the prophet takes, starts condemning various nations around the Israelites. And you can see the Israelites going, yeah, 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 for three sins and for four, woe to Damascus. And so Damascus is in the radar. And then Gaza and Tyre and Edom and Ammon and Moab and then Judah who is also the enemy of the Israelites at this time. So you can see the Israelites going, yeah, get them, get them, get them. We all like seeing justice done to other people, right? We like seeing other people that have done wrong things being punished, and we celebrate that. But we're blind to our own hypocrisy. And then right after that, boom, Israel comes in. And before I read the indictment against Israel, I want to help you see something that's maybe not readily available um, when you read. But the order of the 
of the cities that come under judgment at the beginning of this book form kind of a crosshairs, kind of an X or a chiasm over it. So it begins, I'll have to do this backwards because you're looking at me. It begins with Damascus. So you've got Israel. It begins with Damascus. And then it goes down to Gaza. And then it goes up to Tyre. And then it goes down to Edom, Ammon, and Moab, who are all in the same area. So it forms this cross over Israel. And then it goes over to Judah. And then, boom, Israel. So you have like this crosshair. It's like a gun. And it's like bang, 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 boom. And Israel is in the crosshairs. And there's a lot of wonderful literary kinds of um, devices like this in Amos that I don't have time to point out to you today, but you can study through a good commentary on your own. I can help you with that if you want. But at any rate, Israel, boom, gets nailed. And we read in chapter 2, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So Israel, completely blind to gross evil, and God has to put them in the crosshairs. So what were these gross miscarriages of justice? Let's look at that now. In, this, uh, in the, these verses I just read to you, we see things like they are, they're selling off good people, righteous people for silver. They're selling the needy for a pair of sandals. So they're exploiting. This is, uh, a, this is human trafficking of their own fellow citizens, redeemed people. They're trampling on the head of the, of the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and they turn aside the way of the afflicted. So they are not upholding the justice and caring for the needs of the poor. And those that are in trouble, they're turning them away, saying, I don't have time for you. Moreover, another reference to prostitution and cultic idolatry, a father and a son have relations with a same girl. They are committing idolatry and adultery. And they're doing some practice scholars are not exactly sure of in verse 8, that in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So they are, they are fining the poor and exacting wine from them and then getting drunk in the temple of God. It is a corrupt and debauched priesthood and ruling establishment. Other miscarriages of justice that are mentioned in this book are violence, uh, slavery, and lawlessness, um, personal enrichment by oppression of the poor, the poor denied access to the courts. We just mentioned that a second ago. 
As I mentioned, sexual abuse of girls forced into servitude, the fine of wine misappropriated, used for drunken carousing. In chapter 4, there's like a a really interesting indictment. If you want to read biblical satire, read the book of Amos. There's a lot of satire and mocking in Amos. And one of those places in chapter 4 where Amos says, Hear this, you cows of Bashan. He's referring to the the, the rich women in Israel. And he calls them cows. He says, hear this, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. One uh, commentator said that these, these women are acting like fattened cows who only serve one purpose. Their only purpose is to eat and get fat. And not only are they doing that, they're taking advantage of the poor in so doing, and they're actually overturning the patriarchy by forcing the husbands of these poor women to serve them and bring them what they need. The prophet goes on in in other places talking about how Israel has turned justice into something bitter. They've thrown righteousness to the ground oppressing the poor and denying them justice and the powerful bribe their way out of accountability. We read more of that. So it's really a lot of what we see today, isn't it? The powerful, the rich getting their way and oppressing others to get what they want. But this isn't just some pagan nation. This is the quote-unquote people of God who are doing this to each other. The fundamental issue for Israel is that they forgot or they rejected. I don't know if they forgot or they don't care, but the fundamental quality of community life together, which is justice. And Amos says in chapter 5, verse 24, for justice to exist, you must understand this. Take away from me the noise of your songs. This is the Lord speaking through Amos. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. That is their vain worship, pretending to be righteous before God. And God's saying, take that away. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. One commentator said, Biblical justice is not something that's like a little pond that sometimes it's a little more full, sometimes it dries up. It's like a stream that is constantly flowing. So should justice and righteousness be for the people of God in the way that they treat one another Israel missed the central point of community life as the people of God. Let's move to the second point then. Social injustice meant the permanent destruction of their nation. This is a a fearful 
a fearful, fearful thing. As we read in chapter 5, verse 2, Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel. Fallen no more to rise. That God extinguished Israel as a nation because of this debauched, unjust way of living. They had their chance and lost forever. That's how much God cares about justice being done in his community. The second and last half of the book of Amos deals with a series of visions about the coming judgment. But before we look at that, I want to say, if you, I don't know if you noted it when we read chapter 5 in our scripture reading today, but there's all these Israelites are saying they're longing for the day of the Lord. Right? And we've been talking about the day of the Lord being the day when we'll be delivered from our enemies. But these are people that are committing wicked acts. And self-righteous acts, self-serving acts, and yet saying, we long for the day of the Lord. And Amos is indicting them, don't say we long for the day of the Lord. It's going to be a day of terror for you. And that's a serious warning, not just for the Old Testament people, but for New Testament people of God as well. That if we live our lives as lives of division and injustice, and corruption, the day of the Lord will not be a day of hope, but a day of utter terror. God cares about how we live. Two of the visions that Amos gives are visions that symbolizing uh, destruction, that of locusts and fire. Two of the visions that he gives also symbolizing destructions that there are objects as well. So like there's a plumb line that's going to measure the people of God and judge them. And there's a there's a, a break in this vision where we get this historical um, moment where Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, is stirring up uh, Jeroboam to take down Amos. And he's claiming that Amos is creating a, cons- a conspiracy to take down Jeroboam. But Amos responds, Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord, chapter 7, verse 16. You say, do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword. And your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourselves shall dine in unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. So we have these, the threat of locusts coming and devouring the land. We have the threat of fire coming and consuming everything. And then we have the threat of this plumb line. And uh, in ancient days, they would use a plumb line to like measure property lines or to measure out different things. And this plumb line is now a symbol that this, this army is going to come and invade and take you out, and then they're going to measure up and divide your property. And then we get a fourth, a fourth vision of a fruit basket of, filled with summer fruit. 
And uh, what that image is, is implying in chapter 8 is that of overripe fruit. You know, the fruit in the, in the summer, that's the last. And then it's going to get overripe and start rotting away. It's like the apples in my garage as we speak. So we have this apple tree and we got buckets of apples and we got too busy or too lazy to, to do I take the blame to do anything with them. So they're in my, they're in my garage and they're starting to rot and spoil. And that's Israel. They're overripe. They're rotting and spoiling their past, their use. And all that's left is to throw them out, as I'm going to need to do probably this week with those apples. They need to be thrown away. We read in chapter 8, This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, The end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy, and bring the poor of the land to an end saying, what will we, what, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. And then in verse 11 of chapter 8, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. The gravest judgment of all is not that they'd be taken off into exile, but that God would stop talking to them. The gravest evil of all, or punishment, I should say, of all, is that God would no longer speak to them. He says, you're going to wander from sea to shining sea, from north to south to seek out the Lord, but you will not find his word. There will be a famine not of bread, nor a thirst or water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. There is a kind of hardening that can come upon a person that if they reject the word of God long enough, God's not going to speak to them anymore. You even have this this is uh, maybe getting into more than we can talk about uh, in one sermon, but the, David's cry, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That there is a true, there's, it, on the one hand, it is true that the elect receive all the benefits of Christ and cannot fall away, that no one can snatch God's people from his hand, as Jesus says in John 6. But on the other hand, that in the people of God, there can be, as it were, a participation in, in the gifts of the Spirit by being part of the body of Christ. And yet if you reject the word of God long enough, you will no longer hear. 
the word. And there is certainly a famine for the word of the Lord in the West, is it not? I can't speak as much for the East because I don't know the East as well. But in the West, there is a famine. And I believe that God has brought it in judgment. There are few pulpits still preaching the word of God and not man-centered messages. As my brothers in, in seminary here in the city, there are a few seminaries that haven't gone liberal. That haven't said, well, the Bible's just a book like any other. We should treat it and criticize it just like any other. There is a famine, and not just in Norway. There's a famine in the West for the word of the Lord. And we need to pray that God would have mercy and that dead churches and pulpits would be revived once more. But let us not be like the Israelites who lost the privilege to hear the word of God. And even when they sought for it in later days, could not find it. Let us pray for mercy and appreciate that we have the word, brothers and sisters. We take it so for granted that God has given us Holy Scripture. And not just that we can own a Bible, but that he gives us a desire to read it and to study it. But don't take that for granted, lest it be taken from you. Don't take it for granted to seek to obey the word of God lest it be removed from our midst. I pray that it would never be said of our church that there's a famine for the word in that place. Amos's final vision is one of the Lord. He has a vision of the Lord God Almighty. And this vision is the Lord striking the capitals of the, they're the, the temple pillars and striking it and bringing it to the ground. He says, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. So it's this temple falling on these wicked people, worshiping God in a wicked way. Strike the capitals, let them fall on their heads and those who are left on them I will kill with the sword and none of them shall flee away. The picture of God is not a picture of a loving father, but of a vindictive judge, an invading army. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. But then there's hope. And the second part of this vision is that the Lord will raise up David's fallen tent. except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Chapter 9, verse 11. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. So we have this picture at the end that even though Israel's going down to rise no more, Judah in the south, David specifically is going to rise and that city will be rebuilt and that is going to be the place of justice. So I want to conclude this message with a third and final point 
that Christ transforms social justice for the church. Christ transforms social justice for the church. And we'll just look at this in brief. I'm no, by no means trying to give an exhaustive picture of what social justice for Christians means today, but I just want to give you um, a few brief meditations on it. Uh, six, uh, very brief. Number one, Jesus solves our justice problem with the Father. Jesus solves our justice problem with the Father. First and foremost, before we could ever do anything just, we need to deal with the own injustice, the own sin and unrighteousness in our own selves. And that could only be provided for through the cross of Christ. Jesus had to die as our substitutionary atonement that God's justice might be satisfied over our own sins. That's why in, in Romans 3, after Paul talks about Jesus being our substitutionary atonement, Paul says in Romans 3.26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we need mercy. We need to be justified. But for God to be just, our sins still needed to be paid for. And that was purchased by the blood of Jesus. So justice begins with the gospel of Jesus Christ and our own sins being paid for and the justice of God being met. Jesus solves our justice problem with the Father. A second way Christ transforms social justice is that Jesus levels the prejudices of rank, station, gender, and nationality. In the Greco-Roman world, it was a a place of uh, incredible segregation, of racism, uh, and not just among different people groups, but particularly of women and children. Women were very low class. They were, women were viewed just a notch above slaves in the Greco-Roman world. When Jesus comes in, he levels all of that. And the way of faith and the way of salvation is the same for every person. So Paul can say in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We all come to Jesus the same way. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to promise. This does not mean that there aren't male and female roles anymore. This does not mean that there aren't uh, leaders, for example, or elders of a church. But as we come to Jesus, we are all the same. And if you study the history of Christianity, Christianity utterly transformed the way Men, or way women and children and other minorities were viewed within the community of God. Three, Jesus shows that our justice should focus on God's people, but not to the negligence of larger society. One of the abuses of Scripture today is that they kind of take verses from the Bible and then just apply that to the world generically. But when we read about the oppression of the poor, for example, in the Old Testament, that was oppression among the people of God. 
It was a focus of how are we treating the community. And ironically, there's many Christians who actually spend more time advocating for care of people in the world while they don't go to church. They're advocating for righteousness and justice in the world, but they don't care about the people of God. And that should be our primary focus. Paul says, So then as we have opportunity, Galatians 5.10, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So our focus of righteousness and justice should be within the community of God. That should be our primary concern. And yet, we should also show a concern and a care for others as well. That's why Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who, you know, the, the, the Jews are asking, well, who's really my neighbor? Well, the Samaritans were the bitter enemies of, of the Jews. They were those who stayed within the territory of the northern ten tribes but who worshipped Yahweh in their own way. These were the bitter enemies. And we, we learn that even as the Samaritan goes out and cares for the Jew, that we should have a likewise concern for those we consider outsiders. Uh, same way, Jesus will say, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. So we should have a concern that transcends not just the bounds of our, uh, that's not just within our community, but transcends the community as well. Number four, Jesus reaffirms that the true def- uh, that the true definition of justice is to uphold God's law. Okay. The true definition of justice. Now, this is what separates biblical justice from modern views of social justice. Is that biblical justice is to uphold God's law. So it is to uphold the rights of the unborn, right? Social justice is not to advocate for those who are, who are celebrating sin in the world of one kind or another and giving everyone the free right to sin and, and to celebrate that and that if you don't, you're evil. That is the opposite of biblical social justice. You know, Christ tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that he came not to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. And that the person who's blessed in the kingdom of God is the one whose righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. The corset sets us up for the need for Jesus because he's the only one that can do that. But we should be pursuing righteousness according to the law of God. And that is the true definition of justice, of upholding God's holy law. And uh, one, one final one. Oh, sorry, no, I've got two more in brief. My apologies. Number five, Jesus shows that, the, that only he can exact perfect and complete justice. Right? When we try to exact perfect and complete justice now, it becomes terrible. Look at what happened in the Holy Roman Empire. It became a place of a lot of evil. Because places of power always draw people who want to be powerful, but not righteously powerful people. You could look at the Church of England or state churches too, or we could look at the Denorska Church as well, that when a church has to serve the state, it has to compromise 
on the law of God and that there, there will never be a perfectly righteous institution or nation until Jesus comes. And that's why he's got to come. That's why we read Revelation 19 and 20 where he comes as the rider on the white horse to deal with the evil in creation. That's why a new creation is going to be given where there will no longer be sin or the enemies of the people of God. No more suffering. As we read in Revelation 28, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then finally, and in brief, the gospel is, number six, the gospel is our model for social justice. The gospel is our model for social justice. We're uh, running out of time uh, this morning, but I will leave you with an application. I want you to uh, read Romans 12 uh, today or this week and think about how God defines justice. When we think about the gospel, it should transform the way that we live with one another. That's why Paul begins Romans 12 saying, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that is the gospel that he's just spent 11 chapters unpacking in Romans, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And he goes on, and this whole chapter is how we ought to live with one another. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. As far as is possible, live at peace with everyone. You know, I'm just paraphrasing and giving you some examples. But read that chapter and ask yourself the question, what does it mean for you and how you should live within the community? It's, again, always easy to see other people's problems. It's a lot harder to see our own but let scripture critique yourself and also encourage you and sanctify you in how you live with one another. If we embrace Romans 12, this will be a very good place to be and a very happy and fruitful family that we will have with one another. I will leave it there and let's pray.